0: But his time is almost gone. Death and succession loom large in his thinking. And the designated temple builder, Solomon, his son, has to ascend the throne. And most importantly, he has to build the temple. And in some fashion, he passes the baton and the fulfillment of God's purposes in Solomon and sees that it's recognized publicly. That's what's happening here. Now, David summons his sons, he summons the nation's leaders and the representatives of all the people to a great public assembly, an assembly that happens before God himself. When you read of these assemblies in the Old Testament, they're always assembled before God. This is an inauguration ceremony. Now, in chapter 28, David first charges these leaders and then his son with certain responsibilities, and in chapter nine, chapter 29, David leads the whole assembly in a worship service that's characterized by giving and thanksgiving. So this week we're going to look at the charges in verse 28, the charges that are made to Solomon and the people there. And then next week, chapter 29, Lord willing, we'll be looking at this incredible worship service that happens as a result. So this morning, we need to hear God's charge, God's challenge to us. Over the last few years, or over several years of ministry now, I've been involved in a few uh, what's called ordination services, where uh, a pastor is publicly set apart for pastoral ministry to a church. And usually in an ordination service, there are two speakers. There are two speakers. One preaches a sermon called, The Charge to the Congregation, in which the speaker charges the congregation with its responsibilities to its new pastor. And then another speaker gets up with the charge to the candidate, in which he preaches a sermon charging the candidate with his responsibilities to this congregation. And what you find in verses 2 through 8 of this chapter is the charge to the congregation to the leaders who will serve under the king. Now, if you've been with us through this, some of this sounds real familiar. It sounds familiar because in chapter 22, he said basically said all these things, but those things were said in private. They were said to Solomon. This now is a public, a public proclamation. Here is the public official commis- commissioning or charge to the leaders and the people of Israel. And so, hear the charge to submit. Hear the charge to submit. First of all, submit to the sovereign choice of God. Submit to the sovereign choice of God. David repeats the story of his intention to build the temple, the central sanctuary in Jerusalem. He tells them of that intention. He publicly says, it was always my intention, if they hadn't known it up to this point. It's my intention to build, but God says that I I really wasn't fit for the duty of building the temple. I'm a man of war, and we had to wait for peace to come. And Solomon is the man of peace, and so he will be the one who builds the temple. Now, because he has been set aside from building the temple, you might think that the dynasty was set aside in ruling the people of Israel, and David says that's not so. God has, in fact, chosen my son Solomon to be both king and temple builder, okay let's look at verses um, verses four through seven all right and here's where he says um, yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever for he chose Judah as leader in the Uh, And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who shall build my house and my courts for I've chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. God's choice of Solomon for these two important roles, king and temple builder, is seen as the outworking of God's providence. This is the sovereign choice of God. First of all, God chose the tribe of Judah from which the royal line was going to come. Turn back to Genesis chapter 49. In Genesis 49, you see Jacob uh, prophesying, and he's talking about what's going to happen with all the tribes. And in chapter 49, beginning in verse 8, it says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness who, who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. All right? God chose the tribe of Judah out of which the royal land was supposed to come. The royal line was supposed to come. Now, it's interesting to note that Judah is the one who instigated the selling of Jacob, I'm sorry, the selling of Joseph, into slavery. And it was Judah who had an incestuous relationship with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Not the kind that you would expect God's blessing, but that's not all. Out of Judah, God chose David's family as the beginning of Israel's ruling house an insignificant family, in an insignificant village called Bethlehem. And from that insignificant family, he chose David. Now, if you don't understand the story of David, you got to see that David was the runt of the litter. Right? He was the runt of the litter. He was the most insignificant son of an insignificant family in an insignificant village. I mean, He was so out of the picture that, remember, Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel. He's so out of the picture that Jesse's like, well, there's David. He's not worth mentioning, but he's out taking care of the sheep. And so the most insignificant son of this insignificant family is the one chosen to be king. And now, out of all the sons of David... God chooses Solomon, who happens to be one of the youngest of his sons and the most inexperienced of his sons. If we go back, we won't do that, but if you go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, you see 19 sons of David listed, and that doesn't talk about any of the sons by his concubines. So he had a ton of sons. All right? And out of, out of all those sons, it's, it's uh, Solomon. Solomon. The one who is the one of the youngest and inexperienced. In fact, he says so in the very first verse of chapter nine. And David the king said to all the assembly, "Solomon, my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great. For the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So out of you choose one of the youngest sons, and you choose the one who doesn't hardly that has hardly any experience." Listen, God rarely picks the candidate we would pick to accomplish his purposes. It's clear from Scripture. I am amazed at this. When I look at how God... You watch God work through all of Scripture and you see that he goes counter to anything we would do. A persecutor of the church, a violent man, a blasphemer, right, Becomes a faithful follower of Jesus and one of the greatest missionaries that God ever uses. An insignificant monk studying his Bible changes the course of history. Martin Luther. A cobbler. A cobbler. Right? A man who repairs shoes is the one who opens up all of Asia to missionary endeavor. In fact, he founds the modern missionary movement, William Carey. A deacon, a deacon on a very snowy day in, in, in England, a deacon on a very snowy day gets up to preach in the congregation because the weather is so bad that the pastor can't show up that day. And who walks in to that little church but Spurgeon? And that deacon is the instrument by which he is converted, right? Right? I can think of a man with only an 8th grade education who influenced a generation of young people, a couple generations of young people who are faithfully serving God today. My dad. And you know what? There's countless Sunday school teachers, people in the pew. By the way, he's talking to you here. No one's going to expect great things from you either. But God uses people and things that... We would never choose to accomplish great things, and that's what he's done here. How many? How many of you have looked at someone and said, "Him? <laughs> him? Well, he doesn't have much of an education. I don't think he's even been to seminary." And you know what? I knew him when he was growing up, right? I knew him when he was growing up. But here's the deal. God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. It really shouldn't surprise us that God sends his son to an insignificant village and a lowly barn and that he grows up in a town that no respectable people would ever go to. Right, And he makes that lowly man the savior of the world. Right? Whoever would have thought of that? Now the people who first read these words, remember the historical background. This is written to the people who have returned from exile. That's who's reading this. They are a people who are conquered. They are a people who are, are slaves to the Persian emperor. And they're looking for hope. And the chronicler is trying to give them hope and he records these words. And so the issue is, where should they start looking? Where should they start looking? Remember the theme of these books, for the king who will unite them as one people to worship at one temple. Where should they be looking? Where is your hope for redemption is what the chronicler says to us. A man whom I love, I mean, a man whom I love won't accept the gospel. Why? Because it's just too simple. It's just too simple. It's the lowly things. So he says, submit to the sovereign choice of your God. All right? You know, all of us on this side of the story, we know all about Solomon, how great he was, his great fall, his restoration. We, we all know about that, right? And they did too. But God is telling them, Look in the right places. Submit to who God chooses, right? David next says in verse 8, Submit to the sovereign command of God. Um, verse 8. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. Now comes this Terrifically solemn charge terrifically solemn charge from God. A charge in the sight of Israel. A charge in the assembly of the Lord and in the hearing of God. And they are commanded to respond to God with covenant loyalty. Covenant loyalty. Seeking out the commandments and obeying them. Now you have to remember that God made a covenant with Israel. Making them a nation. And they were commanded to obey all his decrees. Look over at Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules, or the laws that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live, and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I commanded you. So here's the, the covenant he's made with them. Keep these commandments and enjoy then the land, enjoy that inheritance. Now, here these people are the first readers of this, several generations later, seeing that no one has fulfilled the conditions of that covenant. And again, the writer, the chronicler, is calling them to covenant loyalty, to covenant obedience. Now, okay, can you, can you put on your academic hats for a moment? Okay, who are the recipients of the first and second chronicles? The people who've returned from exile. They are a people who are losing hope. He's writing them this in order that they may have hope. In order that, looking over their history, they see that God always intends for them to have one king uniting one people to worship at one temple. That's what he's trying to tell them. He's surveying the history to tell them this is what happens. Now, Ezra lived at the same time that this was written. Okay? Ezra lives at the same time that this was written. And what do we find happening? What's going on? Look at Ezra chapter 9. Ezra chapter 9. No, no, I'm sorry. It's Nehemiah 9. Yeah, you see, Nehemiah and Ezra together, and Ezra wrote a book, and then Nehemiah wrote a book with Ezra in it, so I get a little confused sometimes. That and, well, I think I'm getting old. Well, I don't think that. I know it. Nehemiah chapter 9. Okay? Nehemiah 9 verse 32 Here's Nehemiah's pr- or Ezra's, I'm sorry, Ezra's prayer recorded in Nehemiah Now therefore our God the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us upon our kings our princes and priests our prophets our fathers and all your people since the, na- since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, and our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. What's Ezra saying at the time this was written? The land is not our possession. And we have misery, not blessing. And so as these people read the history of their people and leaders, they see failure to keep the covenant obligations. Well, what in the world, what hope do they have? What hope do they have then? Well, again, remember, this is tuning them to start looking for that king. And who is that king? It's Jesus who does fulfill everything, who is loyal to the covenant in every way, and he is the one who fulfills those conditions. Jesus obeys, and on the basis, and on that basis, his obedience, God's people have an inheritance. But it's not a land that can be lost or conquered but inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade now do you see the connections here one has been loyal to the covenant has fulfilled every one of its conditions and therefore because of his obedience we his people have the inheritance but not a and not a land that can pass away but inheritance that can never perish spoil or fade So, hear the charge. Submit. Submit to God's sovereign choice. Now, hear the charge to our king, which is verses 9 to the end of the chapter. What does he tell him? What does he tell Solomon? He says, first, and you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind, for the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he'll be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. Be careful now, for the Lord has chosen you to build a house for the sanctuary. Be strong and do it. Well, first of all, what's the charge to the king? He has, he has to seek the Lord. Do you remember why God took the kingdom from Saul? He wasn't seeking the Lord. Solomon should seek God by acknowledging him. By recognizing God's authority. And his whole reign, his leadership of God's people, should be characterized by a wholehearted, total submission to God's will. Now, think about the administrations of past presidents, if you're old enough. Now, I'm not old enough to remember Washington or Lincoln. But, when you look at the administration of Washington, if you know your history, Washington set a whole bunch of precedents. He's known for setting the precedents that our nation follows. Lincoln was known for his ideas of freedom and equality for all people. Kennedy, whom I remember, Kennedy was known for his youthful leadership and idealism. Reagan was known for strong leadership that brought about the collapse of communism. Every single administration, there's something that you can see characterizes it. So he says to Solomon, your reign should be characterized by this. Whenever anybody says the word Solomon what you want to come to their mind is a man, as a king, who um, earnestly, willingly sought God. When they say Solomon, that's what they ought to think. If you seek him, he says, if you seek God, he will be found by you. But if he refuses to seek Jehovah, or if you prove unfaithful, God will forsake you. And then he says, consider this, God chose you, to build the temple, that's the charge to the king. Second, the king has to follow God's directions. Look at verse, um, and I'm not going to read through all of it again. Then David gave Solomon his son the plan, and then the whole that whole list of how much weight for of gold for every vessel, how much weight of silver for this vessel, where this goes, the whole plan for the for all the houses or all the rooms and everything else, right? And then he comes in verse 19 to say, All this he made clear to me in writing from the hand of the Lord, all the work to be done according to the plan. The king has to follow God's directions. He has to follow God's directions. He has to seek God, and then he has to follow all his directions. These architectural plans, David said, came from God himself. This is what God said. And you have to build. You must build the temple according to this plan. All right. Now, that's not we shouldn't say wow, that's weird. It's not weird. God did the same thing with Moses when he built the tabernacle. He gave him every detail to be done in that tabernacle. So he's done with David, every detail of the temple. What you have to see is that God's sovereignty extends to the minutia of our lives. There isn't one part of our life that's beyond the sovereign rule of God. And like Solomon, we have to submit to God's directions. The, all the instructions here, and David says, this is what you have to do, should remind us that the sovereignty of God is complete. All right. Now, again, right? Um, it doesn't reach the minutia of our life like it did theirs. I mean, if you have mold on your walls, that doesn't mean you have to get all the mold off your walls and you can't come to church for so many days until you're clean, right? It doesn't tell us that, but it does point in this direction. Jesus is Lord of every area of your life, right? His sovereignty extends to everything in your life. Now, we really need to think about that. Jesus is Lord at work. Jesus is Lord not just here. Jesus is Lord in my home. Jesus is Lord on my vacation, right? Right? Um, let me give you an example of that. One of the things that Jesus has said that really has struck me is, you have the greatness in the kingdom of God as means you're the slave of all. And so I've been impressed with the fact that if Jesus is the Lord of my life, I have to be slave in every part of my life to whoever I'm with. All right? Now, every year we used to go to, on vacation to the sunny shores of Iowa. That is to say, we went home to the farm. Okay? So when we go on vacation, right? If Jesus is Lord over my vacation, what does that mean? Well, one thing, he's told me to be slave of all. And so I learned that vacation was a change of venue of ministry. All right? Just a change of venue. I remember one year. It was the year... Um, And and by the way, I'm not trying to point myself as the paragon of virtue here. I'm just saying this is some of the ways that I'm thinking about the lordship of Jesus. The year I got my appendix burst, I got them out. A couple months, we went out to the farm. And I remember uh, swinging a sledgehammer, breaking up a feed floor one day. And that was kind of hard. I remember that. But the point is, he's lord over every area of your life. If you're the slave of all here, As your minister, as a pastor, you're a slave of all when you're on vacation. You're a slave of all when you're in the hospital. You're a slave of all when you're at the restaurant, right? And so um, God's sovereignty, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus reaches every area of your life, okay? And we have to follow that. We have to understand that. We have to live that. And then the last thing that David charges Solomon with is, you've got to find strength for your task in God alone. Verses 20 and 21. Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And behold, the divisions of the priests and the Levites for all the service of the house of God. And with you in all the work will be every willing man who has skill for any kind of service. Also the officers and all the people will be wholly at your command. First of all, he says, the Lord is with you. The Lord is with you. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid to tackle this task. Don't let discouragement turn you aside from this task. All right? The God who led David in battle, had never deserted him. The God who exalted him as king had never left him. The God who made a covenant with David, this is the God who is your God. He will give you what you need. Be strong and courageous. The same God is with you in whatever he gives you. And then the Lord's people are with you, right? He says, look, you've got all these people who are going to serve. They are with you as well. The Lord is with you and they are with you. And listen, I'm convinced that we get strength from God through others, through people. You know what we tend to do? We tend to do this. We say, oh God, give me strength. And we expect some kind of a zap, some kind of a sudden inflowing of strength, right? So we feel confident and we're ready to go. You know what? More often times than not, the grace of God comes to you in a familiar face. Who walks with you, who helps you and encourages you, and it is the Lord who is with you as he uses that person. And David is saying you have all these people. The Lord will be with you. Don't be discouraged. And look, you got all these people. He's not separating them. He's saying this is God who's going to give you strength. Again, I don't want to run, get run off on a rant too much, but you know, we have such a mystical view of how God works. Like God give me strength. Right? God, give me grace for today. And we expect some kind of a zap. Whereas, God, give me grace for today. And you're about ready to give up when some friend comes along and starts ministering to you. Maybe not even knowing what you're going through, but in some fashion ministers to you. Okay? So, the Lord is with you. But in all this commissioning for service, we must ask Did the king remain faithful to the charge? Did he remain faithful to the charge? And the answer is no. He got to building the temple. He got to be a very wise man. He wrote a lot of great stuff, but he went off the rails. I believe he was restored later, but nevertheless, he went off the rails. All right? So what are these readers supposed to think? Those original readers, what are they doing? They're looking for a king. Who won't go off the rails. Who is that king? You know who he is. It's Jesus. We can only find him in Jesus. He alone fulfills all of those covenant responsibilities. He alone is the faithful one. He alone is the one who completely gave himself to seeking the Lord and obeying all his commands. He is the only one who devoted himself to God wholeheartedly. And became the builder of an indestructible temple. And so... We have a charge to keep. We have a charge to keep. Right? Um, We have to submit. We have to submit to our king. Our king, the Lord Jesus. That's what God calls us to do. Submit to his sovereign choice. Right? And we have to hear the charge that he gave us. And we have to hear the charge he gave our king. Because the king that fulfills that is the one that we follow. May God help us to do that. Father, thank you for your word again, and thank you for the fact that it points us to Jesus. Help us now to seek him and to seek to obey you through him. Help us, Lord, to obey you by grace. That is, Lord, being convinced that you love us in Christ, being convinced that you accept us in Jesus, we will be encouraged to obey. Thank you for your word this morning.